Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Planker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. And our mission is to safely guide you through an array of visions and vistas, sounds and sensations, which will both entertain and enlighten you. Where does the tour stop off? Well, we've got world-renowned, award-winning, soul-stirring photographer, filmmaker, artist, model, builder, storyteller, Dan Winters, <laughs> joining us in just a few moments. But first, Fritz and I have our eyes on the media landscape, and we have been taking notes Fritz, what have you discovered? I'm going big right off the bat cool. here. Cruella. Ah. Everybody knows about it. It's in theaters, Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, Hulu. This is adapted from 101 Dalmatian Story. Not a prequel. It's a much more adult, punk, 21st century origin story of Cruella de Vil, the villainess from the original tale. Do not take your toddler, do not take your preteen to this, expecting to see carloads of cute, spotted puppies. <laughs> that it ain't. This is Disney's brilliant marketing, understanding that those of us who wore out our VHS tapes of 101 Dalmatians have all grown up, gotten more grizzled, and more cynical. I love this. I went with my daughter, who was seeing it for the second time, now, this was my first trip to a theater in over a year and a half, and it was just a magnificent release. It was like a rock and roll fashion show <laughs> with lots of laughs. It stars Emma Stone as Estrella, a young and skilled grifter determined to make a name for herself in the fashion industry. Her nemesis is the Baroness, played perfectly by Emma Thompson. The Baroness was sort of Meryl Streep's character in The Devil Wears Prada with even less empathy and more over-the-top evil. Fantastic. <laughs> Lots of laughs and hijinks from Jasper and Horace, Estrella's street-level crime partners. They played uh, by Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser. They were two of my favorite characters in the original story and even more underhandedly funny in this movie. And Weezy, uh, in a couple of our podcasts, we've talked about securing music rights for films. I don't know how they did it here. There were probably 20 major rock and roll hits, including The Stones' Sympathy for the Devil, I think maybe the top or second best rock and roll song of all time. But it really drove the energy and the visuals. I wouldn't be surprised if, just like Wicked, Disney turns this in to a Broadway show. I, I really loved it. So does it show Cruella's multi-layers or give her backstory? Is there a, sort of a, an origin story to her evil? Yes, and 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 you and the beautiful thing about it is you let her be really wacky later on in the arc because you understand her less than perfect circumstances at the beginning of her life and it also I, I won't say how it also gives you energy and either your like or your dislike of the Baroness. Ooh, okay, great movie. It sounds amazing. So I have another movie that's opened in theaters but is also opening at home at the same time, which is a new interesting paradigm that we're witnessing before our very ears and eyes. Uh, this is In the Heights. Long ago, in a time before Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote and launched In the Heights with Chiara Alegria. It hit Broadway in 2008, where it won multiple Tonys, including Best Musical. The show takes place in Washington Heights, a tight-knit, mostly Dominican neighborhood situated at the top of Manhattan. Here, a kaleidoscope of dreams pulls and pushes a yearning, vibrant community into heartfelt song and dance. The film adaptation is in theaters and streaming on HBO, directed by John Chu. It features a wonderful cast, including Anthony Ramos, 
Corey Hawkins, Leslie Grace, Melissa Barrera, and Jimmy Smits. The film just pops with color, community, and song. It is at once cozy and big, filling you with warmth, rhythm, and celebration. It's positively the perfect post-COVID theater film celebration, but I watched it at home. Now, if you have gone to the theater, like Fritz has, we would love to know how that felt for you. I imagine this film would be thrilling on a big screen, but I don't feel ready to sit and laugh and sing with strangers. Also, when I sing in theaters, I am escorted out with a flashlight. <laughs> so, yeah, we watched it at home and we absolutely loved it. It's just spectacular. Well, Lin-Manuel Miranda with Hamilton has changed Broadway. Not only his multicultural casting, uh, but the way he's written the lyrics and the, the dense hip-hop type lyrics. And you were saying that you find a great similarity in the way that show was written. You can see his progression to the Hamilton score as well. Yeah, he has certain chord progressions and certain syncopations that are just notoriously him, but it's just all great stuff. I think an interesting uh, face-off, an artificial face-off as it will be, is between the Steven Spielberg West Side Story, which is a Latin-flavored story, along with uh, In the Heights, and to see which comes victorious in America's minds. But I think they're both really going to be Can exciting. I root for both? Yes. Do I have to pick a team? Yep. All right. So what else you got for us? All right. I have a nature documentary. I love these because you can watch them with a the whole family. All the nature docs, David Attenborough, the Explain series that we've done earlier on this podcast, and this one. This one is called Human, The World Within. It's on Netflix. It was acquired from PBS. Brilliant animation, easy to understand narration, and most importantly, personal stories. Your child will probably m learn more about anatomy from this film than from any school textbook. They go through the different systems within the miraculous organism that we each are. For instance, how the brain and the central nervous system turn information into action, how the heart powers us through physical and emotional changes, how the human gut processes our food so we can survive, how our immune system works. Really interesting. The only thing is, after you watch this, you will become very self-conscious of your internal organs. <laughs> As you go through the day, you'll be wondering what your mitral valve is doing right now. <laughs> and you'll also want to take better care of yourself because it's all miraculous, but a, a wonderful documentary series. It is. It's what's going on inside of us. And you can scale all the way out and look at the universe and be completely mesmerized and then you can go down to the cellular level and be just as awestruck That's what so it does. it's mm -hmm. all a miracle so i watched speaking of the body i watched two hearts on netflix it's two with the number two in case you're looking for it because this is a popular title uh if you're a, if you're a phil collins fan uh this movie is boats did you know what do you know what boats means no. Boats, Fritz, based on a true story. Uh. It's an organ donation love story. And I would have said, spoiler alert, but it is based on a book, based on a true story called All My Tomorrows, colon, A Story of Tragedy, Transplant, and Hope. So the transplant part comes even before the hope. In parallel love stories, the lives of college student Chris and wealthy businessman Jorge intersect in a profound twist of fate. FYI, the wealthy businessman Jorge in real life is Jorge Bacardi. 
And you may ask, did Rum assault his organs or his colon? And I will tell you, no. He was born with a congestive lung problem and not expected to live past 20. And in the parallel stories of Chris and Jorge, we really don't know who is going to give who a handy life-saving organ. It's very touching. Fill out your donor card. Check that box on your driver's license. You are going somewhere (laughs) that does not require your kidneys. It's like leaving a book behind on an airplane for somebody else to enjoy. Nice. Great review. I don't really think I reviewed it. I think I just kind of like told you what's in the movie. But actually, the kid who plays Chris is very amusing. He did a a wonderful job of bringing that kid to life. So it's just one of those Netflix movies that Netflix says you might enjoy. And then, you know, hey, Netflix, you were correct. I enjoyed it. I got something out of it. Very interesting. Are you ready to introduce our our guest? I can't wait. Okay. Was making sure we were all caught up to speed on our recommendations. I highly recommend Dan, the work of Dan Winters. Let us now welcome Dan Winters. Hi, Dan. Hey. Yay. Awesome. Good to see you. Good to see you both. Good to see you. I have a great review uh, for you from Wheezy's sister, Joanne, who is a graphic artist mm-hmm. and visually knows of what she speaks. She said, There is not a Dan Winters photograph that doesn't give me goosebumps. Aw. Wow. She's so Pretty cute. Good review. Can you put that on? Some of your business cards, Dan? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually thinking about putting that on my business card. Now. All right, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dan. Dan's bio is rich and thick. He photographs performers, athletes, world leaders, spaceships, eagles, peacocks, and bees. His Instagram bio reads, photographer, director, illustrator, Nat Geo explorer, model builder, beekeeper, family man, follow my other account, at tone.shortfilm. Dan is making a short film. And you can follow Dan Winters on Instagram as well, and you will be amongst many other people with fine tastes on Instagram who enjoy looking at everything that Dan posts because it's all, as Joanne said, goosebump-inducing. Now, Dan, the latest thing that's happened on your Instagram was that you, or where did this post originate? Were you uh, photographed and filmed Angelina Jolie wearing a family of bees, and where did this first appear? That was commissioned by National Geographic, and um, it was uh, <clears throat> commissioned. And the idea was that it would uh, that it would uh, go on Instagram in conjunction with World Bee Day, and uh, so we did a shoot. <clears throat> uh, I, I guess about a month or a month and a half prior to World Bee Day, and then the intention was that that would go up on Instagram, and then later on, images from the shoot would be published in the magazine. Now, I understand that getting bees to hit their mark can be a little challenging. (laughs) So please tell us how you captured these beautiful images. Well, the first, I'll give you the whole process, which I think is pretty fascinating. Yeah, So Angie wanted to uh, do this picture uh, that referenced a photograph that Richard Avedon did in 1980, and it was called the beekeeper and it was a uh, photograph of a man with covered with bees and it was a part of his america west series of images and so we uh set about trying to figure out how to go about getting the bees on there now it's very tricky uh, and i think you throw into the mix you throw COVID into the mix the fact that we're all working through masks uh you throw bees into the mix and then you throw angie into the mix and so it was kind of a difficult process to figure out so we tried several things so the idea was to get the bees onto her body and we would do a portrait of her and you know bees aren't they're kind of like cats you can't really train them Mm -hmm. so uh we did some research and i found an article that was printed uh 
shortly after Abaddon did that beekeeper photograph where they interviewed the entomologist who was the bee wrangler for that shoot. And he talked about using a queen pheromone. We had tried some other things. We had, we had kind of been led down a couple of paths that didn't really pan out. Uh, so my friend Conrad, who I'd hired actually to wrangle on our shoot, uh, did some exhaustive research and actually found the entomologist. He's 90, how old is he? 87. He's 87 years old now. Uh, Dr. Gary, he lives up north. Uh, he's retired. So we found the guy that had done the Avedon shoot in 1980, and he still had the queen pheromone that he had produced for that shoot. And then, our, of course, our first concern was like, well, yeah, but is it still going to work? And he said, yeah, it'll, it'll work. No problem. Don't worry about it. So the second thing was a lot of the bees in Southern California are Africanized bees and they're very aggressive. And so the idea of using a hive, yeah, here's the Abaddon image. So the idea of using a hive in Southern California, just a, uh, in, in, as a part of an apiary, the idea was, or the, the concern was that uh, the bees would be really aggressive and we need real tame bees. So we found a beekeeper in Carpinteria that raises uh, almost a pure strain of Italian bees, which are the most docile bees there are. And so we got some bees from him and we used the queen pheromone and I put it on her body, you know, her neck, on her clothing, on her face. And um, we got all the lighting dialed in and then we brought the bees in and had a table sitting in front of her with bees and she brought her waist right up to the table and they just started climbing all over her and she just stood there. I, I checked the time imprint on the shoot from first frame to last frame and it was 18 minutes and change. So she stood there covered with bees for 18 minutes, didn't get stung one time. And then the only time she got stung was after we were completely finished and we were walking back toward hair and makeup and uh, a bee went into her boot. She was wearing these boots and a bee went into her boot and stung her on the calf which completely non-phased her. She was just like, oh, I think I just got stung. And you got stung so, again? Uh, go ahead. You got stung? She got stung once. I got stung seven times. Seven times? What's the pheromone do, Dan? Well, it's a uh, queen mandibular pheromone, and it's basically uh, the product of grinding up a bunch of queen bee heads. And bees communicate through smell which is why beekeepers use smokers when they work bees because it masks the danger alert that goes through the hive. Uh, so they can't smell over the smell of that smoke. And so the hive stays calm. Um, so the pheromone is basically indicating that there's a queen. And so these bees, they turn very docile and they were just kind of wandering around on her looking for the queen. Well, well, you're not just, uh, you, you, you're a twofer. You're, of course, the world's most talented photographer, but also you're a beekeeper yourself, right? You had to have some expertise in this. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I started raising bees when I was nine years old. And uh, I was in 4-H. And uh, I had hives all the way through high school. And when I left for college, I sold my hives to a beekeeper. And then about eight years ago or so, um, I got, uh, some hives. I have three hives now. I'm a, like a gentleman beekeeper, but yeah, still have bees. And, and that was one of the reasons, I mean, I've shot for Nat Geo for years, uh, but that was one of the reasons they reached out to me as well as they knew that I could shoot, you know, a celebrity. And they also knew that I could deal with the bee problem or the bee, you know, part of it. 
and in solidarity, uh, in solidarity to her, I didn't wear any bee uh, attire. I didn't wear a helmet or veil or a bee suit or anything, because I felt like you know I was going to be right in there with her. But I was handling the swarm outside to get it into the building, which is when I got my stings. Once we started shooting, I was fine. I didn't get any stings at all. So if we go out past the lens, you know, we see the bees that are on Angelina. If we go out past the lens, how many bees are there in, in your surroundings? Uh, a lot. Um, there, you know, there were probably maybe 2,000 bees Whoa. in the, uh, yeah, a hive, like a healthy hive is between 35,000 and 60,000 bees. Um, we probably had a couple thousand in there. Uh, I'm not sure how many. I actually had thought I should count how many bees are on her. Um, there are multi multiple images, and uh, I think the one Nat Geo ran, uh, I was going to count to see how many bees were on her, but just out of my own curiosity. But um, I would guess, you know, several hundred are on her. But, um, yeah, there are a lot of bees, a lot of bees. And, and one of the problems we had was we, have, we used electronic flash to light the uh to light the uh portrait which i always do but or usually always do um but the um modeling lights from the heads were kind of making the bees go crazy so we were working in almost total darkness which is very difficult to focus and stuff you know we had almost all the lights in the place off so that the bees would calm down because it's just like moths to a porch light you know they were going nuts flying into the lights and stuff Oh, so that was a problem I had, actually hadn't anticipated, but we had to deal with it, you know, on the spot. It worked out fine. The first thing I thought when I saw that photograph was she, she has one of the most spectacularly beautiful faces on the planet, right? Oh and gosh. I watched her with the, with the bees, and she was so composed. And, uh, yeah, serene, and I thought... She's saying in a subconscious way, not even the threat of being stung by 2,000 bees can upset my, my <laughs> stature here. I mean, she I couldn't believe the confidence she showed. But, was, you know, yeah, that, it, the message is that the, the, these are our friends, okay? Yeah. And they, and well, for those of us who don't have together. that kind of a relationship with bees, I thought it was pretty impressive. But on this planet, we need each no, other no. And, uh, and we coexist. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Very Dan. much so. Very much so. And that was her message. And. You know, it seemed like this really, it was just this really gentle, serene, like we went to great lengths to make sure she was safe. We had a paramedic on standby. We, she had done an allergy test the week prior to the shoot because she'd never been stung as, as an adult. So we wanted to make sure she didn't have any allergy. Paramedic on set. We had a number of people ready and at a moment's notice to intervene if there was a, a problem. And I think she felt, and I explained all that to her. I said, you know, we have done every single thing we can to ensure that this goes down safely. Um, you still may get stung, but I can promise you that there's not going to be a stinging event, you know, a mass stinging event or anything. And I think she felt good about it, but what a just fearless woman. I mean, she yeah, walked that, that, in. That's, that's what I was trying to say. Wow. She, yeah, I know, Fritz. She walked in and she just said, okay, let's do it. You know, let's get the bees. And it was just, there was never a moment of recoil. It was pure acceptance in the most beautiful way. Um, yeah, I really, I mean, I've always admired her. I've worked with her before. Uh, and uh, it's like my level of admiration just 
skyrocketed after that. It was just the most beautiful, simple, gentle moment. You know, it was like 18 minutes uh, seems, you know, very short, but I think with a couple thousand bees around, it was kind of, it seemed like an eternity. I didn't want to stop shooting, but I felt like I can tend to be greedy as a photographer because I, I like to explore. And um, this was one of those times where I really had to say, okay, we have this and we need to stop. Right. And, you know, I just, it, it's sometimes difficult for me to do that because I know that possibly something that's around the corner that hasn't sort of presented itself yet may present itself. And I'm always ready to react to that. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you know, we got to a certain point and this was not reviewing this. Was, I was not able to review the monitor either oh. because there was no time to like say, okay, hold tight for a minute. Let me go through the shoot. I had to just be confident in my own abilities and just call it, you know, and we got the bees off of her really quickly. And, and if you speak B, they were saying, yes, queen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that they were. That they were. What's the and women's then getting them off of her was, oh, really, them off, was yeah. really, was really hilarious too, because, you know, what we did is we took her outside and we had her jump up and down to get, to shake them off. And we used a brush to brush them off of her. And uh, I actually have video of her jumping up and down, trying to get the bees off of her. It's, it's really, it's really kind of sweet. She's got a big smile on her face and she's completely surrounded by bees and still is just completely nonplussed. By wow. It. It's pretty interesting. What's the women's bee initiative? So UNESCO and Grillane perfume company started a initiative uh, through which women beekeepers around the world are being, or women around the world are being educated as to the intricacies of beekeeping and supplied with hives and materials. And it's a very long-term project and ongoing project. And the idea is that out of the seed, these seed apiaries comes uh, the ability of the women to then educate others and to uh, form uh, an economic uh, uh, platform for themselves. And also, obviously, it's, it benefits them, the crops. It's all in agrarian areas, but it's all around the world. And Angie is, the, um, is kind of at the forefront of that. She's sort of the spokesperson for it. And, uh, and uh, it's a really bold and very profound initiative that they've undertaken that really, really, I think will yield sort of some beautiful results. I know the first place they're starting, they're doing it in Cambodia, which Angie has deep ties in Cambodia and uh, south of France. I know there, there is a project going on there right now, but. From an economic standpoint, how many bees do you have to have where it's financially feasible to you for you to turn this into a business? I mean, to sell honey or whatever you do. Yeah, I mean, to make a living at it, to be honest with you, uh, do, it would depend on the economy that you were in. Um, my friend Conrad Buffard, who, like I said, wrangled that, he owns a company in Austin, Texas. And he, so beekeepers, it's a good, really good question, Fritz. So most commercial beekeepers don't make their money off of honey sales. They make their money off of pollination of crops. Oh. So they hmm. truck their bees all around the country and they'll put it into, for example, they'll, they start usually up in the Northeast with berries and they'll put hives and, and it's, it's been worked out to get optimal pollination of any particular crop, how many bees per acre, how many hives per acre are required. 
to get an optimal pollination. Once that pollination takes place, then they'll pick the bees up and they'll move it to a different crop, work their way down south, work their way over to California for the almonds and et cetera, pecans. So, so like for example, in Southern California where I grew up, I had my bees in citrus orchards uh, out in Ventura County and citrus requires 2.5 hives per acre for an optimal pollination. And so the honey, because it's mixed honey, so it's not like a pure honey, like for example, if you left them in the citrus crops in California, you'd get a, a citrus, uh, citrus blossom honey, but it would be intermixed with eucalyptus because eucalyptus has been used for windbreaks for a very long time up in Ventura County. So it's a wonderful honey, um, but the honey that oftentimes is sold at the market is blended honey. And it's, uh, it's almost blended in the same way that like wine would be blended where they have a blender and the guy's blending the honey and getting a taste out of it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like a pure strain honey, like a clover or something. Um, so they're really selling their honey in bulk to these big honey companies that are then blending it and they're not getting optimal prices for it. Now, my friend Conrad, on the other hand, does not do any pollination. He has 4,000 hives and they're kind of all over. He's got them out near Houston and he's got them in Austin and uh, down south in the valley. And he does kind of monocrop honey. So um, much of agriculture these days is mono agriculture where it's a single crop. Mm. And as far as I can see, it's one crop, you know, they don't, it's not intermixed. So this is something that doesn't occur in nature either, you know, where you have a single crop covering, you know, hundreds and hundreds or thousands even of acres. Um, but he's got 4,000 hives and he's got a thriving business. So I guess to answer the question, you know, in the U S to have a really solid sort of honey business, several thousand hives probably you could have a very now he's got a bunch of employees and huge commercial extractors and all the machinery for bottling and all that so that's all required to be a you know viable commercial entity in in b market um you know when i was in high school and in grade school i sold my honey literally no exaggeration like out of my wagon i would go door to door <laughs> knock on the door of people and ask them if they wanted to buy any honey. And I actually counted on that money. You know, that was one of my sources of income uh, when I was growing up was my honey, honey money, you know? So it was, uh, it worked out for me that way. But I would say, you know, somewhere to get back to your initial question, somewhere in the 2000 hive range to sort of be able to like make a decent living off of it. So this post goes viral. It goes viral for everyone who posted Nat Geo, you. Did Angelina post it as well? Uh, she doesn't have Instagram. Oh, she doesn't. No, that's <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Uh, her assistant Mindy has Instagram, um, but uh, yeah, it went very. It was really crazy. It went viral really quick. I think the first image we posted went up to like forty thousand likes and you know over a thousand comments. And the second image we posted was close to twenty thousand, and I can't. I don't know how many comments and then more than that more beyond my instagram nat geo's instagram i think it was the largest uh re, the most well received viewed and commented on and uh liked image 
that Nat Geo has ever posted. So when speaking as someone who for whom that has happened, because a lot of people, a lot of our listeners haven't had a viral post. So what is it like? Do you try to keep up? Do you try to answer everybody? Do you try to dialogue with everybody that's enjoying the image or is there, it just keeps scrolling and there's just no way you can keep up with that? Well, I would answer that by there's no way you can really accurately keep up with it. Uh, and then to answer the other part of the question, Kath, my wife, uh, is the one that managed all that. And she managed it that day. I would periodically ask her what was going on with the image during the day that day. And she would kind of give me a, uh, kind of give me a, um, rundown one of the one of the problems we have and we've had images go viral on a number of occasions but one of the problems we have with it is that uh people don't bother to give photographer credit oh they so just they take repost it with no credit and you know there are people that there are you know there are a lot of big sort of like luminary or public figures that have reposted our images with no credit, who have many millions of followers. Wow! And um, I think Stacey Abrams was another uh, was another picture we did not too long ago that um, went very very viral. And um, to this day, it's constantly posted with no no way and the Angelina it. stuff too is just constantly reposted with no image. I mean, you can't really keep up with it. It would be kind of a full time job. Kath does spend time. Uh, reaching out to people and just saying, you know, we, that's our image, please credit it. You know, she's very nice about it too. Very non-threatening. It's just very much so, you know, we're happy you love, we're happy you like the image. Can you please credit us, you know, rather than sort of cease and desist kind of stuff. But um, it, it's a little frustrating. I mean, you know, I, I don't think anybody does it with any kind of malice. I think that it doesn't occur to people that there's an authorship, you know, it's beyond what's in the frame, you know, it's like that, mm -hmm. that had to be created. And I don't think it occurs to people to, to credit, you know, I think it occurs to people, I, I, especially if it's a publication. I just don't, I don't believe it doesn't occur to people. I just, you know, I guess it's, it depends on how it's being used or what it's being used for. If you're showing it to kids at school or something that, you know, yeah, I guess so. But what is your, what are your thoughts on watermarking and, you know, and the ways in which photographers who make a living at this protect themselves or is there a certain amount of leakage that's expected as as part of the craft yeah and i would say that you know publications of course know the rules these are what i'm talking about are just private you know yeah people with uh people with accounts that think it's cool and they share it and they don't credit it and you know uh, if they have a really high volume account it goes out and it doesn't no one has any idea where it, where the image came from um yeah certainly publications etc know the rules um so it's very difficult for photographers to protect themselves you know we can watermark our images on instagram uh we can the the one thing about the images i know that i've had this conversation with my wife before Catherine, is um the notion that people can take your image off instagram and and use it. And um, the one kind of the nice thing about Instagram for me in that regard is, and I have no fears for that because those files are so small that you really wouldn't get any mileage out of it. Okay. You can't print it. They're so small. Okay. You know, they're a couple kilobytes. So there's not really anything on Instagram. Now, images on my website, for example, which this is something we've discussed, you know, at length in the past. Um, you know, there are high res files. They're still not 
you know, high resolution files. I mean, like the native file out of the camera I shoot with, the native file that comes out of the camera is a hundred megabyte file. That's a massive file, wow. right? That's a yeah. hundred megapixel camera. It's like a 120 meg file or close to 200 on the 100 megapixel. I think the 50 meg file is 110. The 50 meg camera is 110 megapixel file. 100 megapixel camera is like two, close to 200 megs. So those are massive files, right? So, you know, if I did a screen grab, if I did a screen grab off my website, off of a big monitor, I'd have like a five meg file. You could make a little print off of it, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't look great. You know, it's it's difficult you know, it's difficult to get anything offline to actually print Mm -hmm. and turn into something physical. It's really easy to get stuff offline to use again, then off online uh, from off, off of a website or off of uh, uh, any kind of post. It's really easy to get stuff to repost with. But Instagram, if I took one of my Instagram files and put it on full screen on a computer screen, you can see that it's a degraded file already. It's not a good file. They're tiny files, you know. So So that's a good thing. It's obvious that it's a violation of your intellectual property rights being the creator of this image. But does Nat Geo have any recourse? For instance, if you put one of those photographs that will end up on the cover of Nat Geo uh, on your Instagram account to promote it for the magazine and for otherwise, do they have any recourse uh, going after these people for a rights violation? You know, it would depend on what it was. You know, I mean, for the most part, I think a lot of it is viewed by probably their legal staff as stuff that's kind of what they would probably deem harm harmless or promotional. I don't, I don't, yeah, exactly. I don't know that they, uh, I don't know that I've ever been in a situation with Nat Geo where I've relied on their legal team for anything that's ever come up with us. Um, We've had things come up, but it's never been something that was related to Nat Geo. Um, Mm -hmm. I would agree with you that they probably would view a lot of that as promotion and be thrilled, you know. I think it would be if it were used in an ad or in some sort of promotional way. Yeah, exactly. Then it's like, yeah, okay, you'll be hearing from our lawyer. Yeah, that's when it's a problem. And we've had that happen. We've shot bands before, and suddenly we find out that they're selling the photograph on concert t-shirts on their tours. Oh, wow. Which is a total no-no. You know, it's like, that's all negotiated stuff when you do shoots. Merchandising is a separate line item. And, you know, if there's no merch deal, you know, and they just kind of (laughs) like do it, you know, it's, yeah. Well, I'm going to, we're going to, Thomas, could you please uh, scroll through Dan's Instagram and then, and anything that, that strikes your eye? Uh, Fritzy, okay. or it strikes my eye that we want to ask Dan the, the story behind the image. You know, maybe we'll do. While he's racking that up, let me throw, you, you mentioned one of the names that uh, uh, that was on my list, Stacey Abrams. I'll mention some other names and just give me your reaction to your brief experience with them in the photo shoot. Okay. Like Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, Joaquin is a really quiet, kind of shy, uh, very introspective, I would say introverted a little bit, um, methodical person. And I don't, I don't think that being in a still photography situation is comfortable for him, <laughs> like many actors. 
they would rather have a task. Um, and usually what I'll have to do is just say, look, I know you'd rather sort of have motivation and be doing something, but let me just talk you through this. And that 99% of the time, nearly 100% of the time, is a relief to people where I just say, just sit tight. Let me just talk you through this. Mm -hmm. And so I could tell when Joaquin got uh, in front of the camera, he was a little bit, he felt a little bit awkward. And when I started to just kind of talk him through it and just breathe, you know, give me your head in this direction, chin down a little bit. Good. Hold that right there. That's, that's good. Cool. Kind of just talking him through it mm -hmm. and being there for him. And I do that a lot with, with actors. And I've actually had a lot of actors thank me for uh, not expecting them to generate content, you mm -hmm. know, just like at telling them what I need, you know, just directing them essentially, which is they're very used to being directed as it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they yeah they are. Let's talk about Willie Nelson. Willie, coolest guy. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, just the coolest guy. I actually have a funny Willie story. I, I, I smoked pot with Willie, and um, you should not have. That's like been that kind with of Dalai an, Lama. You should not yeah. have been that kind of an influence on Willie. That's. So I know. I know. I brought it. Dangerous. With me. Gateway Hoping. stuff, Dan. <laughs> no, it was it was crazy. He, him, and Leon Russell were in the bus. Oh Lord! Oh wow! It's a long afternoon and, right there. <laughs> yeah, and Mickey Raphael, his harmonica player, came out of the bus and said, "Oh, you know, Mick, Nicky, um, Willie wants to talk to you." So I said, "Oh, okay." I went in, and they were sitting down in the bus, and I sat down with them and started chatting while Leon was rolling a joint. And I don't even smoke pot, but I figured, like, if I was gonna smoke pot, you know. Yeah, Willie would be a good person. It's a good place to start. This is such flawed thinking. It's not even funny because you know it was like the strongest. I mean, I I I took two hits off of it and then just passed it. But I got that under my belt, though. You know, I smoked pot with Willie Nelson. I thought that was kind of cool. That is excellent. Yeah, but I remember you talking about how you guys were up in Bakersfield and you took Correct. him. The, I mean, the shot looks just ethereal, but you actually are in a parking lot. No, we were in a field next to a Walmart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so Buck Owens has a venue up in Bakersfield called Crystal Palace, and it's a country venue. And Willie was playing there that night, and uh, Leon was uh, playing with him and also opening for him. And so we got there and I checked in with Willie and I said, you know, I need to set up gear uh, and I'll find somewhere around here to do it. And so that field, it was just this wonderful kind of empty field. And, uh, you know, if you look around, I always feel like it would be really neat to do 360 degree photos of my photo shoots. Oh, yeah. Because, because you, I only give you sort of like what my frame holds. You know, I don't <laughs> yeah. give you the context. That's all that's required. But yeah, it worked out really well. You got one, Fritz? Yeah. The uh, the I, I want to go back to the stars. Al Pacino. Oh, incredible! I was nervous for that one. I I, I don't remember ever being so nervous as I was for the Angelina shoot of any shoot in my entire career, and I told her that because there were so many things that had to go right, and that's a very so many things that I had no control over that had to go right. Al Pacino wouldn't have done the bees. He would not <laughs> have done the bees. But it was a really, it was kind of amazing because, you know, it's like, you know, I'm a 
film fanatic. I watch film constantly. It's my favorite art form. And I, uh, of course, am a huge fan of him. And I feel like oftentimes, and I know the New Yorker and I know the New York Times both, uh, and I've discussed this with the photo directors, but they've said like, we give you shoots that we think are going to be difficult shoots because we feel like you know how to do it you know you can get it done kind of thing and the pacino one was i think the photo department felt like you know it could be difficult could be problematic so you know good luck kind of thing i mean oh my god he gets there he was a little late apologetic got him right in uh and he was just working with me and the the thing i connected to him about the the one subject that I connected with him um, was being photographed by Irving Penn because he had been photographed by Irving Penn twice. And I love both of those portraits so much. And Penn has always been one of my uh, total idols as far as portrait photography goes and photography in general. And um, I asked him about that right off the bat. So what was it like? And, you know, this and that. And I think he like the fact that I wasn't asking him what it was like to make Serpico or what was it like to make Dog Day Afternoon. It was like, what was it like to have this experience you had with this other person? So the spotlight was kind of off him a little bit and mm -hmm. more that he could like celebrate Irving, which I thought was really great. And he really, he worked hard. He worked with me. We, we figured that shot out. It's really hard to do like hand photographs that feel sort of authentic. Um, they oftentimes feel really kind of like, you know, they just feel, yeah, exactly. But I loved how he covered his uh, eye completely with that one finger. I just love the picture. And he was. It's very Shakespearean. That's a great picture. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. And I love the jewelry he was wearing because that was his, what he showed up in. And uh, yeah, I really, uh, I really like that photograph. And when I finished, once again, uh, you know, I shared this with the Angie and that is like not wanting to be greedy. You know, I was able to be glancing at the monitor while I was shooting, but also the LCD back of my camera images were coming up as I shot. Um, but when I got that picture, I knew I needed one portrait for the New Yorker. That's what I needed. And um, I got that shot there and I just stopped. That was the last frame or very close to the end of the run. And I said, okay, I'm done. And the, the one thing that was funny that he said, I said, I could do this all day, but I got it. And he goes, well, I could do this all day too. And I just thought that's mm -hmm. such a pro, you know, it was so neat. But it was really good, really great shoot. Wow. And, you know, it's interesting. It's like I liken it to the first time I saw the Eiffel Tower. You know, I, I have this, I have this kind of image in my mind of the Eiffel Tower uh, that I've had since I was a little kid. And I've never been to Paris. And so I have this image that's a photographic image of the Eiffel Tower or, or a moving image of the Eiffel Tower from film, but I've never seen the thing. And oftentimes when I photograph people that are, I call luminaries, or I don't like celebrity as much as luminary, people in our personalities in our society that we know, we all collectively know, um, there's a real interesting uh, uh, connection that, that takes place when you are in the physical presence of someone you've known for a long time mm -hmm. in the same way that when I think the first time I went to Paris was in the nineties at one point, I think, and seeing 
Paris with my own eyes and seeing the Seine and the bridges and the Eiffel Tower, et cetera, et cetera Opera House, et cetera. Um, you know, it the context is different. It suddenly shifted and it's never going to be the same again for me. Mm -hmm. So I'm no longer relying on that like third party kind of image. Uh, I have my own firsthand experience of it. And it's very interesting with personalities to have that firsthand experience uh, of working with those individuals because it changes, I think, the context with which I kind of like then live my life with. It's it changes the imagery that um, that is evoked every time you think of them from that point forward. Now you've got this personal encounter so that you can, you know, that you, there's your, your framework shifts, you know, immediately. But mm -hmm. it's also interesting that, you know, they kind of walk into a room knowing that people already feel like they know them. And then you walk into a room knowing that they know that people already feel like, so there's this kind of like dynamic that's unique to a famous person and someone coming into work with me that you kind of have to find your balance in a different type of way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Do do any of these big stars, Angie, Pacino, any of the people you've done, get final cut with your work? Say, absolutely, no, I don't want that publicized or anything like that? So, Pacino, absolutely not. I mean, I could probably make a billboard on Sunset Boulevard and he would say, <laughs> absolutely not. Uh, with Angie, um, it varies. Usually what I'll do is I'll give the person a number of images for approvals. And then I'm very good about not. So there was a point in the 80s when photographers started um, doing shoots with celebrities and shooting way over shooting, right? And then they'd have stuff that they could syndicate. And the celebrities wouldn't be, they wouldn't have, have no control over the syndication stuff. And so publicists have got, you know, savvy with that and uh typically what we do is and the agreement i have with angie was that we would uh we would um present um a, a take a take of images and she would uh she would uh, choose one she liked and then we could use that for i don't even think i'll probably use those for syndication more what i'm concerned more about usually is uh my archive uh moving forward you know publications uh like books exhibitions etc you know i'm always i always want to make make sure that i have control over my photographs for use that kind of usage you know not necessarily as much for for publication or for reuse you know is that is what what is the arrangement between you and the publisher is there any kind of exclusivity for a certain period of time before which you're not really permitted other than your own instagram or like what it is is it different with every publication the arrangement. Yeah, so they have an embargo period, mm -hmm. uh, and every publication has a different embargo period. Some of them are longer than others. They're usually in the uh, sort of in you know from weeks to months, uh, and um, there are some publications that restrict uh, further usage uh, for publication and other to be published in other publications of stuff that's used for covers, for example. Like if something's the cover of National Geographic, I'm not sure if Nat Geo has this. I'll use it. I'll give you a hypothetical. If I shoot a cover for Nat Geo and uh, New York Times wants to use it on the cover of their magazine, it will be stipulated in the contract that it can't be used as a cover image for someone else, uh, but it can be used on the inside. Or... Oh, okay. When you get commissioned by a magazine, New York mm -hmm. or New York Times, 
do they give you parameters? Do they give you uh, uh, suggestions as to mood or something they're trying to accomplish with the picture? Or do they let you just be your creative self and surprise them? Well, a lot of times, uh, a lot of times I'll speak with the writer who's done the piece, working on the piece, and I'll speak with the photo department and try to get a sense of like what their intention is behind it. Um, I usually, you know, I'm under the assumption that they hired me, so they want me to bring my kind of aesthetic sensibility, et cetera, to the shoot. Um, oftentimes there'll be a discussion if it's a very specific thing, like when we did the Bernie Sanders shoot, for example, the New York Times uh, had a specific approach that I that they pulled off my website and they said, you know, we really like the way you did this. Can you do that with Bernie? And uh, and uh, so I had an idea of like what their expectations were. Um, the Pacino one, there was there were no expectations. Color black and white. They didn't. They they said nothing. Just do a portrait of Al Pacino. I always like I like working that way where there's no kind of expectation because I feel like I, I challenge myself a lot more when that's the case. You know, if I never do, I never feel like I'm executing an idea that someone else has uh, with regards to like editorial work. You know, oftentimes in advertising, it's so many people have been involved in approval process. The approval, like for example, we do a fair amount of movie posters and. Um, you know, there are so many people that weigh in, talent weighs in, director weighs in, usually producers are weighing in, people at the agency are weighing in, people at the studio are weighing in. So when you get down to the day of the shoot, a lot of people have signed off on this idea. So I'll usually always do the idea and then see if I can bring more life to it and see if I can bring something else to the idea. Maybe something they didn't, nor did I expect or expect to achieve. Um, so yeah, it varies, definitely varies. But usually uh, there's a discussion. Oftentimes the website comes up, you know, oh, we saw that picture of Al Pacino. We really love that. Um, if you, if you, you know, you could do something like that if you wanted to kind of thing. But mm -hmm. I don't ever feel like, especially in, you know, journalism, my journalistic work, there's, there's much of a parameter placed on me at all. Have you shot Joe Biden yet? With a camera. Have not shot Joe with Biden. a camera. Have not photographed Joe Biden. <laughs> but you, <laughs> you, you got to be careful there. You do have to be news here. You will probably get to, get to. Yeah, I would. I would hope so. Yeah. Capture his image. So in so. his entire career, you have not had an opportunity to photograph Joe Biden. That's this is going to be interesting. Yeah. Is it yeah. weightier to do candidates like Bernie Sanders? You did Barack Obama. That was before he was elected, right? Was he running before and 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 right before he uh, the end of his second term? Well, oh, Dan, okay. Dan can tell you. Okay, this. so he was the president. So I want to talk about the weightiness of shooting a you know the highest office in the land. Did they give you time parameters? Were oh yeah. You, were you instructed a little bit more than you normally are? No, I wasn't instructed at all. But I did have a pretty thorough conversation with. The photo director Jody Kwan at New York Magazine uh, going into it. We were given five minutes. Uh, so the for just to give you an idea. So the that diptych there that you have the cursor on this one here. So this is 2008 and 2016. So this is right before he was elected and near the end of his uh, term in 2016. So. Um, there was a specific idea behind the, these two. You know, I, I'd shot that first one. I think we got 20 minutes then. 
and then near the end we got five but i pushed it to 10 and um and it was very i was very ambitious it was a very ambitious shoot you know we had uh, a whole bunch of setups ready backgrounds ready all pre-lit with tripods with cameras so i could just move from setup to setup and have them sit in or stand in shoot it and then move which is how we were able to get you know like generate sort of like a quantity of images because that was kind of the goal um yes they're they're very intense they go by very quickly um we're really the people i work with are incredible incredibly professional and um we we had a lot of setup time at the white house for the uh presidential shoot of him and um we even had arrows tape uh use we used tape and made arrows like you would at a concert for like a band going out on the stage uh, of where he was supposed to walk. So here, walk over here, Stand sit six down. feet apart, those things that they yeah. had. <laughs> walk over here, sit down. And I wow. shot so fast. I mean, I was, you know, the, the, the banter is literally like head down, chin down, move your eyes this way, give me your eyes here. Are we good? Are we good on focus? Are we good on focus? And I'd check with my digital tech who's watching focus. We good, we good. Okay, got it, move and, you know, maybe, just shoot very few frames and then move to the next one, move to the next one. Um, so yeah, they, they are, they're, they're, uh, they're intense and it goes by incredibly quickly, probably like a wedding I'd imagine would go by, you know, with all this planning and then the event happens and then you kind of stand there and go like, you know, did that just happen? <laughs> did that just happen? Oh, did that just Someone's happen? escorting us out of the White House, so I think that did just happen. <laughs> that just happened, exactly. Yeah, no, that's just, that's unbelievable. I, I just want to ask you, because it's the business from which I retired, about your journalism shoots. You've mm -hmm. done some really profound work with things like Flint and some of the mass shootings and these, what we call spot news events. Mm -hmm. Do you feel the obligation that... Um, news photographers feel where they can't put their own political or emotional interpretation on what they're shooting. Do you try to say centrist in all of your shoots or do you allow yourself to have an opinion either way? Well, I mean, I feel like, you know, the subject, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I definitely have strong opinions about things and I definitely would for example, I would, um, if I was assigned to photograph someone that I fundamentally disagreed with and I fundamentally felt like was taking our country in a path that it shouldn't be taken, I would decline to do that shoot. So I would just Perfect. not do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I, there are a number of reasons. One is, I view at this age, you know, I'm 58 years old. I view uh, my shoots as time away from my wife, time away from home, time traveling. What am I going to get out of this photograph in the long term? Is this an image I want? Do I want to? And chances are, it's a really irritating person you'd be spending time with. So, <laughs> yeah, plus the... which I'd be spending time with a really irritating person, which could care less about the process of, of photography or the mm -hmm. practice of photography, the history of photography, all the things that I hold precious. Um, so um, I would just probably not do it mm -hmm. and know 
know that someone else would be there to do well it. yeah there'll be someone else to take the photo it's it's fine but have you been asked to photograph politicians where you said i think i'm gonna i'm gonna call pass on this one yeah so i was asked to shoot bush twice while he was president uh once right when he got elected for time and then once uh sort of I guess in his second term at some point, and I can't remember the publication. Both times I declined to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Although he then, seems quaint now. And then I got this assignment to photograph him at his ranch, retired, the painter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, no, I don't want to do that. And then my wife, who's actually, you know, the little voice inside my head, or the, <laughs> sort of the positive influence on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, you declined to shoot him two times. You've totally objectified him. You should go and see him as a human being. And I said, mm. okay, I'll do it. So we went up to the ranch and did a shoot with him. And it was a ton of fun. He, within minutes of the shoot, he looked at me and he put his finger out and he said, Dan Winters, you're a great American, <laughs> which wow. I thought was hilarious. What did he serve? Uh, did he serve anything? Yeah. What's that? Did he serve anything? Did he bring out oh, lemonade no. onto the porch? It was literally in a big field. It's, okay. a, it's on the uh, website. It could it could get brought up. But um, no, it was just, you know, and look, I'm not going to sugarcoat the fact that I feel like an incredible amount of blood was shed under his watch unnecessarily. Um but in this case, you know, maybe it was a little kind of life lesson for me to go do it. I'm not really sure. Um, I definitely would not have photographed Donald Trump if I were asked to do that at all, ever. Right. Under any circumstances. <laughs> but I will say that that had to do, that would have, I would have had the same response if he had never run for office. And I had just been asked to photograph mm. Donald Trump, like mm. as Donald Trump. I would not have done that shoot. Yeah, good point. I'd have been like, there's someone else that can do that shoot. I don't want to do that shoot. Sure. I don't want that picture. That picture doesn't live in my archive anywhere. I am not interested in having that photograph for myself. And someone else will go do it. I, you always know someone else will go do it. You right. Know? That's the thing. So yeah. it's kind of like, oh, you go, you know, someone else can go do it. Now, before we close, Dan, I want to hear a little bit about the short film that you're working on, because now it has its own Instagram page. It does. Yeah. It's actually finished. The it's film is finished. finished. It has been. I wish I would have known that we were going to talk about it because I would have sent it to you. So oh, you could okay. watch it before. We'll, we'll, we'll just have you oh. as a recurring guest. You'll come back. And okay, we'll talk that about sounds the- good. Um, yeah, so um, I worked on it for two and a half years. It's 40 minutes long. Uh, it's called Tone. Uh, it's kind of a uh, dystopian, unnamed future. Uh, two people kind of heal two people that are broken heal through coming together and the tapestry is very rich there's a lot of miniature effects uh really beautiful wardrobe really stylized uh, a lot of sets uh uh that's actually a, from a different project that's from a thing i did for rick link later but um yeah there's that martian the Martian set there, miniature that I did for the wow, look at surface that. of Mars. That's the house he lives in when he's on Mars. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And uh, yeah, so it, it was a lot of fun, a lot of work. 
I built all the models myself. We built all the sets. Wow. Um, ourselves, um, and just a couple guys. And then for, for, um, for uh, crew, I use students from University of Texas at Austin, film students. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a bunch of hanging out with a bunch of like early t- kids in their early 20s is such a wonderful, beautiful, energizing energy to be around. And they're just so raw. And so they just want to work and they want to learn. And, you know, I never took it for granted. And I never, I never uh, sort of took advantage of, I made sure that I was explaining things while I was doing them. Um, but it was so wonderful to have that crew, that UT crew. Um, we're doing the cast and crew screening is at Alamo Draft House uh, in Austin on the 1st. Uh, and it's already been submitted to Film Freeway, which is the conduit through which uh, films are submitted to festivals. Mm-hmm. We're sh- submitting to 43 festivals worldwide. Oh, cool. So, yeah, so well, that's all going. And uh, yeah, we finished it completely. Um, just about two weeks ago, we finished, we worked on, we edited for three months and we worked on sound for probably that, that long. Maybe we had a lot of Foley to do and a lot of, just a lot of work on sound because it's a sci-fi film as well. So there's a lot of like sound that we created, which was really fun, uh, kind of created our own sounds. And uh, yeah, so it was a really good experience. Well, I cannot wait to see it. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Awesome. Were you able to work with uh, a studio to use their facilities for Foley and all the post-production stuff you needed to do, or did you manufacture that yourself? So we have our own editing suite, and uh, we built a Foley studio. We built a Foley box. Uh, one of the sound guys, Charles, he's 22 years old. He's been obsessed with sound since he was a kid. He just shined in this thing. And my friend Shervin is a composer in London. He did the music, which is so beautiful and haunting. And um, yeah, we did all the Foley stuff. That took quite a while, actually, to Foley all that stuff. Some of the stuff was shot MOS. We had to, you know, Foley entire scenes and, um, you know, just take it one thing at a time, lay down the, you know, kind of like room noise and then just start building it and uh, yeah. nice. room, tone, room tone and then build it. But yeah, no, we did everything at my studio, built all the sets at my studio. Um, yeah, everything. So was it, it was the perfect pandemic project? It was great. Yeah, it was a really, yeah, the editing, the editing and the sound uh, and some effect stuff. We're, we finished all the principal photography uh, and a lot of the effects stuff, a lot of the miniatures uh, we shot during pandemic. We had kind of a bubble crew of people and we edited everything in the pandemic and we uh, did all the sound uh, during the pandemic. And I watched it uh, last week at the draft house on the big screen for the second time, just to check a couple sound things that you can only, really experienced like in a theater, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, signed off on it. And so it's already gone. It's gone to festivals already. Awesome. That's so exciting. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to read our closing credits. So buckle up. <laughs> 
We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediaPathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content, some of Dan's photographs, which would be credited to Dan, you will find on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Dan Winters. Thank you so much, Dan. Our team Thank includes you guys both so much. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman. We will see you along the media path. But first, Fritz has more to tell you. And listen, if you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would really help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts, and if you're new here and this is your first time with us, check out our back catalog. You may even find us binge-worthy. Recent episodes includes all sorts of wonderful stuff. Gary Puckett in the Cow Sills and other baby boomer bands and Tony Dow and Bill Moomey and... Uh, just Diane Warren, icons in many businesses. Going back to the very beginning, you'll hear exciting and exclusive interviews with Henry Winkler, Keith Morrison from Dateline. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us today, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. And subscribe. And subscribe. That was awesome, dude. That was so good. I love looking at you guys. I love looking at you. (laughs) 